Welcome to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez, a journalist and author, and importantly for this story, a cancer survivor. Well, a cancer survivor so far. I've been opened up, my tumors are out, but there's so much we still don't know. I'm in the hospital and in no shape to leave. I'm a fragile family man. Episode 5, The Fragile Family Man. After surgery, things hurt. You're aware of sensations in your body you can't remember ever feeling before, in your guts, in your nervous system. And people do things for you because they're suddenly just hard to do. Cover your feet with a blanket. Adjust the rise on your bed. It's all so hard to do for yourself. I know there are various schools of thought on pain. I've had people tell me, look, if I'm in a hospital, just dope me up. I don't want to feel anything. Just let me know when I can go home. I was kind of at the opposite end of that continuum. I took the least pain medication possible because I figured if I was constantly aware of what was up in my body, I could tell the doctors what was wrong, what was changing, what was different about right now. It was surprising to get the description of what was going on inside of me. Those plastic models of the human body from doctor's offices and biology classes, the luridly colored illustrations in books, give you the impression that the body's layout is precise. Like the spinning wheels, grinding gears, and coiled mainsprings of watches. You can't just push and pull and move stuff around and expect it all to work the same way. It was now Sunday morning. Just yesterday morning, I had checked into the hospital very early, possessing all the standard equipment I had all my life. Then, some cuts were made in my midsection. Lights, cameras, air, water, suction, cutting tools all slid in. A length of my colon, where two tumors were growing, was cut out. From just before the first to just after the second. Then, the two remaining ends were pulled together and sewn together. In an adult man, the colon is about five feet long. On an average day, it absorbs up to a quart and a half of water. All of my ascending colon would go. That's the place where cancers are most often found. When my gastroenterologist, the woman who first told me I had cancer, explained all this to me, I wondered if everything would work the same. Was it really as simple as that, like joining two ends of a garden hose? Yep. She said you could even live well if you had to take your whole colon out. I was puzzled. After all, the colon, like everything else, has a job to do. It extracts water and salts from your solid waste before it's pushed out of the body. If you take out more than a third of its entire length, well, what then? Are you still going to work the same way? The gastroenterologist, the oncologist, and my surgeon were unanimous. Yes, there was going to be a period of adjustment. Not everything would work the same way at the beginning. And then your body would just get on with it. More important and unsaid, those tumors that would have eventually killed you won't be in you anymore. So even if you now had to go to the bathroom with slightly less convenience, you will be alive. It is at once a simple part of your body, 
getting ready to get rid of waste, and incredibly complex, a stretchy, muscly home to complicated chemical processes in your gut, fermentation, absorption, movement, excretion. How will I be normal? How am I going to work? You certainly think about it in those first hours when you're lying in your hospital bed. Will going to the bathroom be the unremarkable part of the day it's always been or some new big screaming deal? I hadn't eaten much of anything in almost two days. There wasn't much in the way of evidence to go on yet. But now I was going to be allowed to eat soft foods, a scrambled egg, applesauce, washed down by coffee and juice. Soon, we would see. Day one after surgery, lots of blood in the bowl. The nurse says, look, you've just had surgery. That's completely normal. Late Sunday night and then into Monday morning. Day two, Monday, the day I was supposed to get out of there and go home. All there was in the bowl was blood. Lots and lots of blood. And it's a shocking thing to see that much of your own blood in one place. A dark, almost maroon color, meaning it was bled out waste product not oxygenated, circulating essence of life. I stood in the bathroom attached to my room and stared down in it for a while. I could have flushed, watched it swirl and head down the drain and gone back to bed, but I was spooked. Was I supposed to be bleeding that much? I did the math. It was about 40 hours since my surgery. For once, I was going to have to be the responsible guy, not assume it was all okay. I rang my call button. The nurse appeared, and I said, look, I didn't flush. I figured somebody's going to have to look at this. And then I watched her very closely. She approached, peered into the bowl, and her facial expression changed. She said, go back to bed, and I'll get a doctor in here. The night resident arrived, looked in the bowl, and knit his brows. That's not good. He said it was a lot of blood. He immediately ordered the end of food and the return to liquids only. He said I probably wasn't getting out of the hospital that day. Damn. Serves me right for being a good patient. My wife arrived very early. I told her what had happened in the middle of the night, and the resident appeared and said something I had been dreading. We may even have to go back in to see why you're bleeding so much. Now, emotionally, you gear yourself up to go through these things as a series of one-offs, goals that you check off on a list and continue moving forward. Anesthesia and a look back in my guts is definitely not moving forward. The gloom descended. The roller coaster of the previous few weeks had just crested, and now I was plunging scarily again. Was I going to die? Well, sure, of something. But I mean, was I going to die soon? I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to be able to say the words out loud, to make them real by saying them to someone else. Maybe I'm dying. It feels a little unfair, but hell, who said life is fair? If this is just the opening shot in a long series of medical interventions, attempts to stave off the inevitable, what should I do? I want to go some places. I want to walk in sunny places with my wife and my kids and my friends. I want to say some things out loud into microphones or pour them from my head onto paper before I check out. I want to go out serene, 
not thrashing and resisting and unreconciled. And if you think that's all pretty melodramatic, let me assure you that when people are coming in and out of your hospital room in the middle of the night to look at all the blood you just left in the bathroom, it doesn't feel melodramatic at all. It feels urgent. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. In their beautiful and understandable attempt to keep me cheery and positive, nobody really wanted to hear about more surgeries down the road. Nobody wanted to talk about a dear friend of ours who got a brief reprieve from her ovarian cancer and then plummeted to her death. I asked my youngest kid, 18, when I went in the hospital and a college sophomore, if she was scared. She said, I was worried sick and scared. Being faced with losing someone you expect to have in your life for a long time destabilizes everything. Thank God we are where we are now, but it was definitely one of the darkest moments in my life so far. There's more. She says, Mom and I talked about how I wanted to be prepared for the worst-case scenario, for coming home from school. But you were actually the one who told me that I couldn't let my life fall apart, especially while you were still alive. I couldn't believe how pragmatic you were, even looking down a dark road. I worried a lot about Mom, all the time. Good kid. Mom, that is, my wife, just kept saying, whenever I'd bring it up, you're not going to die. I don't think I was being melodramatic. I mean, let's remember, I had felt bad for months and deflected. When I finally gave in, went to specialists and found out I had cancer... It was bad, but at least now there was an explanation. Screenings detected no spread from the tumors. Hey, good news in the midst of bad news. The surgeons went in, took the tumors out, and I could leave Monday. Great! But wait, that's too much bleeding. No, you can't leave. You can't eat solid food. We may even have to open you up again. That's not just bad. That's devastating. It gets you to thinking you may be sicker than anyone's letting on. And tucking into another little plastic bowl of applesauce and a cup of bad coffee isn't helping. But later that morning, the sudden high-speed drop of the roller coaster ride flattened out, slowed down a bit. The surgeon's assistant came in during the late morning with good and not-so-good news— No, don't worry, he said, after taking a look at the picture of the blood in the bowl. There's always blood. Don't worry. Yes, you can eat real food again, and no, you can't leave. 
We're going to keep you another day just to be sure. All right. I guess. Well, that called for a celebration. Hitch up the IV pole. We're taking a walk. Memorial Sloan Kettering is so big that my entire huge floor was just for patients who had cancers like mine. But boy, oh boy, there was a range. Younger people with little kids, very old people who could hardly walk. If nothing else, it helps you see the whole landscape and where you fit in it. As I was cruising for another lap, four, five, six, there were others who only moved with great difficulty, and some who just looked terrible. I now had a roommate on the other side of the curtain. He was very sick, and all alone, and couldn't speak English, and clearly he was in a lot of pain. The same chipper nurses who tried to jolly me up, encourage me, seemed interested in how I was feeling. They greeted this elderly gent, too, but he couldn't speak more than a few words of English. When doctors came in, they pulled out their cell phones and called a translation service. They'd pop the phone into speaker mode, say a question into the phone, and the translator on the other end would put the question to my roomie in Russian, listen for his response, then relay the translation to the doctor. Ingenious, I guess. What did they do before cell phones? The gentleman, it turned out, could not pass urine, and as the hours passed and his bladder swelled, the pain grew, and his pain cries were heartrending. Even with a catheter, he was having trouble, and when they decided to move his body, change his position to maybe get things going, it was pretty rough to listen to through the curtain. I was surrounded by love and cheer. He was suffering in a bad way. The blood was disappearing from what I was passing now. I hadn't had so many people come by to see what I was leaving behind in a bowl and react so positively, well, since I was toilet training. I would be allowed to leave. One more day, and I could put on some stretchy pants that didn't pull too much around the waist and walk out the front door. Thanks for listening to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm heading home to continue recuperating. These aren't things I would have chosen to happen to me, but they are the things that happened, as they do to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year, maybe even you or someone you care about. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and pass it on to others facing the same challenges. Somebody it might help, not only to find out how it goes, but maybe to compare notes or listen for insights that can comfort or reassure. In the next episode, Theory, The Tumors Die Before You Do, there's the little matter of the pathologist's report. Did they get it all? Was there spread? Once you know the answers to those questions, you know the answer to the big one. Am I going to need chemotherapy? If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider writing a review or sharing with a friend. This is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks go to producer and audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Learn more 
at evergreenpodcasts.com.